0: One of the joys of being a parent is uh, listening to the surprising and humorous things that your children say as they navigate life and discover the difference, say, between their gifts or their strengths. And we have four children, an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, three-and-a-half-year-old, and a one-year-old, and our two oldest are girls, Sophia and Nora, maybe you've met them. Well, Nora, our second-born, has this uh, real special way of keeping things neat. Uh, sometimes we'll see Nora disappear in the middle of the day. And we'll say, well, Nora, Nora where, where'd you go? And she'll, she'll come back and say, come look at my room. And we go up and her room is totally cleaned up. I mean, this is like a parent's dream. You know, she organized her clothes. She's got it folded. Now, Sophia, our oldest, on the other hand, um, she considers putting clothes away as shoving them in the drawer. In fact, she's even tried to make the case to Holly and I uh, to say, you know, what's the point of folding the clothes anyway? I mean, as long as I know where they are, it's fine. And so a pile on the floor will do or, you know. And so one day, of course, as good parents, we're trying to say, no, listen, there's, there's value in, in learning how to do this. And so one day we were, we were saying, hey, Sophia, I think you need to go uh, clean up your room. And, and she's sort of exasperated. And she says to Holly, she says, mom, cleaning is just not my gift. Now, you know you're in a pastor's home when you start using spiritual gift language to get out of cleaning, you know. (laughs) And so we had to have this little conversation about how, okay, honey, look, there's a difference between your personality and your character. And there's a difference between talents and virtues, and so we began to sort of have this little, you know, small-scale conversation about what this means. But it got me thinking about how, it really, in our world today, conversations about virtue or about character are all but forgotten. Uh, Aristotle, the the great Greek philosopher, used to talk about how we have this vision of human flourishing or this vision of what it means for the human to experience happiness or true flourishing. And based on this vision, you would develop habits that led to it, habits along the way, so that because of habit all of a sudden you would do the right things at the right time. Your actions would come. And it wasn't that these things would, would come as, as, na- as uh, naturally to you, but rather because of these habits that you had acquired, you would learn them as if they were 2nd nature. I think of it maybe as like a, a car in cruise control, and all of a sudden you say, okay, wait a minute, I need to, I need to pass the sky, or I need to slow down. And so you manual override, you override the cruise control to say, no, this is what we're gonna do instead. This is what virtue is supposed to do to our personality. We have these personalities, we have these certain thing, natural, maybe ways that we're wired. And so we say, okay, this is kind of the way I'm headed, but then virtue says, you know what? We need to override that because that's not the right decision to make. And so what maybe didn't come naturally has become second nature and therefore helps you override the wiring that you have. Now, think about, just for a moment, how different that is from the messaging that we are often given in our culture. We're not told that we need to acquire a second set of habits or things that that don't come naturally. In fact, we are only told to affirm what does come naturally. So there's no such thing as really you know, a, a weakness or a flaw or, or, or bad character. There's only who you are. And friend, you just need to affirm who you are and celebrate who you are. And I will celebrate who you are and you will celebrate who I am. And if you are true to yourself, then this is the highest happiness of humans. Now, it's interesting because this is not what the greats have said, but this is what our society has somehow said. On a a small-scale kind of illustration of this, Holly and I, we homeschooled, and so we were talking a little bit about math curriculum for this next year. And anybody who homeschools, you kind of know this, you know, math is always the great bane, you know, because you could do Saxon math, but surely there's something better, And you know. And so we were talking about this, and I just, I kind of laughed for a minute, and I said, you know, it's interesting to me because I grew up in Malaysia, and in Asia... If a student is not learning, the problem is not the curriculum, and the problem is not the teacher. In Asia, it's never the teacher's fault or the curriculum's fault. It's always the student's fault. Now, granted, these are two extremes, but here, you know, in America, if a child's not learning, it's like, well, clearly it's a bad teacher, or clearly we have the wrong curriculum. In Asia, it's like, you're a lazy, stupid student, you know, and it's, uh, again, there's both are too extreme, you know. We're in the middle of a series on the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, 6, and 7, and we've called it Arriving for two reasons. One, it is the kingdom of God arriving. Jesus is announcing that God's reign is arriving on the earth. But it's also, we've also called it Arriving because we're saying, look, in this sermon, Jesus is telling us, Jesus is showing us what it means to be truly and fully human. To live in, a, in this new human sort of way. What I mean by that is this. When God made us, He made us to live and be a certain way. But sin has warped us. Sin has destroyed us. Sin has bent us. And so oftentimes when we have flaws, we say, Oh, I'm sorry, I'm only human. But it would be more accurate to say, I'm sorry, I am still less than human. Jesus is this truly, fully human being that is saying, look, this is the way to live. This is the way you live in light of my kingdom. I wonder if in some ways Jesus is working a little bit with this Aristotle type of method of saying, look, let me put before you the vision of what it looks like for human flourishing and let me talk to you about virtues or habits that move you toward that way. Let's see. In Matthew 5, the sermon opens with Jesus talking about the Beatitudes. In fact, he's basically saying, You want to know who's living the good life? Not these people, not those people, not the strong, not the rich, not the successful, not the powerful, but the poor in spirit and the weak and the meek, and the hungry, and on and on. And so he inverts our vision of the good life. But then he goes on, he says, well, listen, I can't just start talking to you about learning habits or acquiring virtues because the problem you see is not just bad behavior. The problem is a sinful heart. And so toward the end of Matthew 5, Jesus does this whole thing. If you have heard it was said Behavior, don't kill. I'm saying there's hate in your heart. You've heard it said, behavior, don't commit adultery. I am saying there's a deeper root than that. It's about lust. It's about objectifying. And so the whole Sermon on the Mount, if you could kind of zoom out and see this macro lens, it's Jesus saying, here's what it looks like to live this new kind of human life. The ones who are weak, the ones who depend on God. And the problem that you have in living this life it's not just that you've got the wrong set of behaviors, but you've got a sinful heart. Now, this is deeper than anything any other teacher has said, because even the great teachers of virtue and character wouldn't have diagnosed the problem deep into the human heart. They would have just said, well, you need to, you've got wrong habits, you've got wrong practices, and so learn some new ones. Jesus says, y'all, I'm going to take this to a whole nother level. The problem is deeper than that. And by doing that, he flattens the ground and puts us on level ground so that murderers and those who have hate in their heart are all of a sudden saying, okay, yeah, we, we all need help. And now we're moving on in Matthew 6, and Jesus begins to talk about Practices. The opening phrase here of Matthew 6, verse 1, Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness. Now, we're going to talk about, he he says, you know, in front of others, to be seen by others. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But just underline this phrase, practicing your righteousness. This is a phrase that shows up in John's epistle uh, later in the New Testament where he says, look, we are to practice our righteousness. This is an interesting phrase because so many of us want the Christian life to work this way. You say, all right, Jesus, I believe in you, I thank you for saving me, and now I'm going to automatically desire to forgive everybody. And now I'm going to instantaneously love people, and now I will never get impatient on Academy Boulevard again. And now I will never get upset on, on construction work on I-25 and Woodman. I'm just automatically Jesus-like. But it doesn't work that way. In fact, what Jesus is saying is, he assumes that because he's working in us, we will begin to practice. And so he says three specific things in Matthew 6. He says, Look, when you give, and when you pray, and when you fast. He's not, the assumption is not that you will sit here and say, ah, I, I, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, I, I'm in the kingdom. Woo-hoo! The assumption is that since you are in the kingdom, you will begin to practice certain things. Say, well, well, Glenn, I, I don't like that. Why can't it just be automatic? Why can't it just come naturally to me? Why can't I just do whatever's in my heart? Because when you do what's in your heart, it looks like, remember all that stuff in Matthew 5? Yeah, that stuff. And so Jesus is saying, you've got to practice some new things. When you give, when you pray, when you fast. I wonder if Jesus knows something about how practices form us. How practices form us. Think for a moment about these three specific things in Matthew 6. Giving, and praying, and fasting. Giving, maybe we could say, cultivates generosity. It, 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 it's a practice that begins to turn our hearts outward. It cultivates generosity. Prayer cultivates intimacy. Fasting cultivates dependency. And if you're the, you know, kind of more of a, a linear thinker and you want to write down some, a word for each of these things, giving has to do with our money, our resources. Prayer has to do with our time. Fasting has to do with our energy. I'm a terrible faster, just as an aside. And every time I think about a scheduled fast, and like, oh, I was going to fast this day, I always say to Holly, you know, babe, I just, the the, the trouble is, is when I fast, I get really weak. And then she reminds me that that's what happens to everybody when they fast. (laughs) Like, that's the point. You're supposed to feel weak so that you can cultivate dependency. You are are, um, engaging in a practice that saps you of your energy so that you can learn to be dependent. What we practice, we become. I think by telling us to practice giving and praying and fasting, Jesus is saying these practices will actually begin to to shape your heart. It'll turn your heart outward and upward instead of inward and inward. See, I think sometimes we think about change and how a, a person is changed And we think that it only happens from the inside out. But do you know, I think what Jesus is saying is the way that we are made as human beings is change often happens from both places. Yes, from the inside out, but also from the outside in. That as you begin to engage in certain practices, it actually begins to shape and aim your love. There's been great wisdom throughout the church's history that has taught this very thing. St. Augustine talked about the worship practices of the people of God and how they aim our love and shape our love toward Christ. You think about these things, you you say very often, you say, well, I wasn't thinking about Jesus and I wasn't ready to, but, but Paul reminds us, set your mind on things above. So there's practices that all of a sudden you start doing them and they shape you. Now, imagine for a moment if you said, I'm only going to brush my teeth when I feel like it. I mean, if I ha- I'm not going to do it unless I have a passion for it. Because I don't want to be a hypocrite. I ch- I'm not going to be a hypocritical teeth- toothbrusher. I am only- Listen, if I'm not passionate about it, I'm not going to do it. I want to be authentic, brother. just want to be true. Your dentist will have something to say to you about that. My dentist just gave me a little lecture about not flossing. Because I wait to floss when I feel like it. And we all know that practices are things we must embrace because they reinforce a desire that we have. Can I say this? Hypocrisy is not when your behavior is not consistent with your feelings. Hypocrisy is when your behavior is not consistent with your convictions. And so if you say, my conviction is that Christ is worthy, therefore I will engage in practices that turn my heart outward and that turn my heart upward. I'm not going to wait till inspiration strikes. I'm going to engage in practices that do this. Our kids are also taking music lessons and it's real fun as someone who plays the piano to to listen to my children kind of learning their, their stuff, you know. And none of them want to do this. In fact, Sophia said, you know, Dad, I don't want to practice scales, I just want to write my own music. <laughs> I said, well, that's great, honey, but in order to write your own music, you've got to learn scales. Now, talk about not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing. I mean, the piano players know a little bit about this, right? It's because you know scales that you can do this and talk and have a whole conversation. You can lower your voice, get real (laughs) quiet. And then you can lift it up and make your point more dramatic when you play the chords. Because you've learned scales. (laughs) So... So practices, what we practice, we become. There's something about this. Yet, here we are now we say, okay, great. Thanks, Glenn. I am going to practice these things. I'm going to practice giving. I'm going to practice prayer, praying. I'm going to practice fasting because doggone it, that is how I'm going to improve myself. And we have to say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We're off on the wrong foot. Because spiritual practices are not about improving ourselves. Say, What? I thought you just said practices are how we get shaped, and so I'm going I'm to practice. Can I tell you that one of the unfortunate things about calling spiritual practices spiritual disciplines is we've sort of picked up this idea that if I discipline myself, I will be spiritual. Or if I do these things, I can improve myself. Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan theologian, Uh, uh, one of America's great minds said that the spiritual disciplines are really to be thought of not as things that we do but as God's gifts to us. They are a means of grace, a way in which we find God's grace at work in our life. If you want a picture for this, imagine this. There's this waterfall of God's grace. There's this fountain of God's life and these practices just are putting us under the waterfall. it's They, they place us in the posture of dependency and say, okay, God, I'm doing these things because I cannot improve myself. I'm doing these things because I need to abide in you. Does that make sense? So spiritual practices are not the way that we kind of improve ourselves. That's not the goal of this thing. Rather, it's, this, it's the way that we kind of come close and be in place For the grace of God to overflow us. But secondly, what Jesus is getting at in this text is that spiritual practices are not about impressing others. In these three sections about giving and praying and fasting in Matthew 6, the one phrase that that occurs repeatedly is this, to be seen by others. Again, if you're the underlining type, you'll underline it in your Bible. To be seen by others. When you practice your righteousness, don't do it. To be seen by others. To be seen by others. To be seen by others. I was thinking this week about the difference between saints and celebrities. It's very interesting because in our Christian, you know, subculture or whatever, uh, we've forgotten what saints were like. And so we've traded in the concept of sainthood for the concept of celebrity. So we have celebrity pastors, celebrity worship leaders, celebrity conferences that get them all together with celebrity red carpets that we call behind the scenes, all access. And we have all these ways of elevating people, but there's a very key difference between saints and celebrities. Saints made immense sacrifices over a long period of time with no hope of ever being known. Celebrities do the right thing for a short period of time and hope everybody notices. Maybe if I tweet this, I'm guilty of this. Maybe if I post this, I saw someone say, a sure way to know that you're about to brag on Facebook or Twitter is when you begin your post with the word so grateful, so grateful for this amazing accomplishment I just did. I'm just so grateful for it, <laughs> <laughs> and I do this. Saints first began to be named around 100 A.D., and the first, all of the first saints were martyrs of the church, and men and women who were killed for their faith. Think about the difference between a saint and a celebrity. My wife was recently reading this book on Mother Teresa's life. It's called Come Be My Light, The Private Writings of the Saints of Calcutta. And, of course, the, word, this is the phrase, saints of Calcutta, is used kind of informally here. But the reason for this book was because a lot of Mother Teresa's private writings were discovered. The funny thing about it is Mother Teresa wanted all of these private letters and writings to be burned. She didn't want anybody to know. And so I want to read you just a little bit out of the preface. For decades, Mother Teresa and her work received extensive public interest. In view of all the attention she garnered during her lifetime, and particularly at the time of her death at the age of 87, the question arises, what was the source of this attractive force drawing so many people to her? The truth is, she would have certainly preferred to have remained unnoticed. She considered herself just a quote-unquote pencil in God's hand and was convinced that God was using her nothingness to show His greatness. She never took credit for her accomplishments and always tried to divert the attention she received to God and His work, quote-unquote, she would say that phrase, His work among the poorest of the poor, not my work, His work. Yet it was not in God's providential plan for her to remain unknown. People of all creeds and walks of life recognized her selfless love and compassion for the poor. They admired her simplicity and genuineness and were attracted by the joy and peace that radiated from her. At the same time, all those who met her, even just once, were left with the sense that there was something more behind her penetrating gaze. Mother Teresa could not hide her work among the poor, but what she did manage to keep hidden, and with astonishing success were the most profound aspects of her relationship with God. She was determined to keep these secrets of love far from mortal eyes. The late Archbishop Ferdinand Perrier of Calcutta and a few priests were the only ones who had some insight into the spiritual wealth of her interior life. And even with them, she constantly begged that they destroy all her letters regarding it. Can you imagine? Everything I do, I want to Instagram. Instagram. Everything she does, she wants it burned. Don't, please don't, I don't want records of this. The reason for such insistence can be found in her deep reverence for God and his work in her and through her. Her silence now stands as a testimony to her humility and the delicacy of her love. I want to read one short paragraph from one of her letters. To the good God, nothing is little. Hear these words. Because He is so great, and we so small. That is why He stoops down and takes the trouble to make those little things for us. Because He makes them, they are very great. He cannot make anything small. They are infinite. Yes, my dear children, be faithful in little practices of love. It's beautiful, isn't it? The difference between a saint and a celebrity. I think that kind of life is only possible if we believe that we are seen by the one who matters most. That kind of life is only possible. Mother Teresa's life, that kind of life is only possible if you believe that you are seen by the one who matters most. See, over and over again, Jesus says, don't do these things to be seen by others. But there's one other phrase that shows up over and over again in, the, in that same, those same texts. Do you know what it is? Your Father who sees. Your Father who sees. You see, we don't practice our righteousness to be seen by others, but because we are seen by our Father. Think about the difference between those two things for a moment. We don't practice our righteousness. We don't work it out and say, okay, I'm going to work out. I'm going to engage this. I'm going to start doing. I'm going to start giving even when I don't feel like giving. I'm going to start serving even when I don't feel like serving. I'm going to set aside time to pray even when I don't feel like praying. I'm going to set aside a day to fast even though I don't feel... I'm going to do this. Why? So that I can be seen by others? No, but because you already are seen by your Father. Not only are you seen by your Father but you are seen with love and approval. Because of Jesus, the way the Father sees you is with love and approval. For all of us, the Christian life so often is worked out out of fear, out of this intense desire to impress God or please God or win God over or or please God. Lord, please, I just want to... And Jesus is saying, you've got to flip all of that. You don't come, you don't do these things because you're hoping to be seen and accepted and loved, but you do this because your Father in heaven looks at you and says, My son, my daughter, my child, in whom I am well pleased. I keep thinking of that powerful moment where Jesus goes into the waters of baptism and comes out, and the voice from heaven says, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Before Jesus had done A single thing, not a miracle, not a sermon, not anything. It is only out of this deep and profound sense that our Father sees us and looks at you with love, and looks at you with delight, and looks at you with pleasure. It's only out of that that you can say, "Okay, all right," that I'm I'm going to practice these things. Out of that, see hiddenness is so powerful because this is where we are seen by God and where God sees us. Where we see God and where God sees us. The trap of trying to impress others is that when you do these practices in order to be seen by others, guess who's actually forming you? Others. Right? But when you do these things because you are seen by God, guess who's forming you? God. And this is where we come to the final piece. Spiritual practices are not about improving ourselves. They're not about impressing others. Well, then what are they about? Spiritual practices are about the Spirit forming us for the glory of God. It's about the Spirit of God forming us for the glory of God. Not something we do for ourselves, not something we kind of say, okay, I'm gonna, you know. And listen, this is where sometimes you hear people talk about the gospel, and they say, okay, listen, the gospel is that Jesus has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. That's true. But it is also that God, has done for, that God does in us what we could never do by ourselves. Does that make sense? Because if we only say, well, it's what Jesus did for us that I could never do for myself, then we say, okay, great. It's all done then. But what about this working out because he is working in? What about this Philippians two thing? Well, it's the gospel is also that God is doing in you what you could never do by yourself, and so the practices are a way of saying, "Okay, God, I am just going to take the posture of readiness. Come and do this work in me." So every time I give. And every time I pray and every time I fast, it's not to twist your hand. It's not to make you change me. It's not because I'm fasting for a breakthrough or praying for an answer. No, I'm just putting myself in position for you to work and form me. Does that make sense? Totally different. You're not taking the posture of a servant trying to squeeze a blessing out of the master. You're taking the position of a son and a daughter saying, Father, I I just... Hey, Dad, will you you give me a hug? Or as Jonas, you know, throughout the day, our son will just come up to Holly and I and say, Dad, you know I love you. Oh, that's putting himself in position for a big hug right there. <laughs> Jonathan Edwards described the spiritual practice. His picture of it was Jesus' miracle at the wedding of Cana. You know, where this, the servants said, or, or, or Mary says to the servants, "Hey, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Practices." And the, and he comes back there. Jesus comes back there and says, "Okay, hey, fill up these pots with water." And so they fill it up with water, and then it's Jesus who turns the water into wine. And Edward says, "Listen, spiritual practices are like that. It's just us filling the pots up with water. We don't make it into wine because that's impossible." And so we pray. And we give. Why? Because we can make ourselves better? No, no, no. We do these things because we're saying, okay, Jesus, I'm just making it ready. I'm trusting that now you will do that work of transformation in my heart. You'll be the one that forms my heart outward and upward. When we were in Swaziland with the team here from New Life Downtown, one of the homes that we visited was this grandmother who was in charge of the care of about eight or nine of her grandchildren. And she was in charge of them because the parents had died because of disease. And, and we, we came with some gifts and we brought some food and some supplies. And she started crying and she said, those pots over there, said, I, I've always tell my grandchildren, I will clean the pots. But as for what goes in them, God will provide I'll clean the pots. But as for what goes in them, God will provide. Jesus says, your father who sees you will reward you. What, with a sticker? With a Sunday school badge? No. What is God, the father who sees you, what does he reward you with? Himself. Our God himself is the great reward. And so we say, okay, God, I, I'm coming, I'm making ready, I'm filling the pots up with water, I'm getting it ready, what, what will you? I will trust that you will give me yourself. And do you know what, church? He does. He does. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I'll be diligent about these practices, not because I can improve myself, and not because I can impress others. I'll be diligent about these practices because I want to put myself in position, and I trust that you are the God that pulls me into your grace, that pulls me into your life, that fills me with yourself. You are the vine that I am abiding in, and if I'm in you, I will bear fruit. Some of you are listening to this, and you're thinking, okay, Glenn, well, that's that's nice, but but you don't understand, I've acquired some really bad habits. I've acquired the habit of not praying. I've acquired the habit of not fasting. In, in fact, I've acquired, wor- it's worse than that. It's not just that I haven't got these habits of fasting or praying or giving. It's that I've acquired negative habits. I, I'm, I'm, I'm quick to get angry. I, I, I've got a, I'm, I'm prone towards a temper. Or I'm prone towards, I, I've developed bad practices. I've been practicing all the wrong things. Church, this is where Jesus is far greater than Aristotle. All that the great teachers could tell us is, be careful what you practice and what habits you acquire because they will aim your character. Jesus says, I can do better than that. Have you got some wrong practices? Have you you acquired some bad habits? Have you fallen into a way that you can't break out of? Jesus says, I've come to set you free. Jesus says, there's no pattern of destructiveness that is too embedded, too deep. There's no chain that is too tight that I can't break it. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, let go of this yoke of self improvement. Let go of this yoke of trying to work and please and serve so that you can impress others or impress. Jesus says, let go of those yokes. Jesus says, Take mine on you. You're a daughter of your Father in Heaven. You're a son of your Father in Heaven. Take this on you. It's not too late. You haven't gotten too far. You may have been aimed towards destruction, but the Gospel says Jesus comes to make us and aim us toward eternity with Him. This is the power of what Jesus does. He's not just offering us better tips, better practices, better insights. He's saying, I want to overhaul everything. I want to make you truly human. I want to undo all of these things. And I want to set you right with your Father in heaven. And then when you know that He sees you, You will practice giving, practice praying and practice fasting and find that the reward, the reward of God himself is always more than enough for you. Amen?